This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. With the surge, you know, we always think about it and talk about it as being this this sudden onset. You know, where do you start putting people? How do you cohort patients that, again, we talk about in, you know, a hurricane, an earthquake, an active shooter, a tornado, you know, pandemic is a little bit different. Hi, and welcome to the Ian Weekly Show, your emergency management podcast. Today, we are talking to a hospital emergency manager, Chuck Lane, and we're going to discuss how hospitals have prepared for pandemics in the past and how the COVID-19 has impacted them today. This pandemic response has been a lesson on how important emergency managers are. FEMA is stretched thin, as are all states and territories, and each jurisdiction is having their own issue with filling up their EOC with qualified emergency management staff. We've discussed in the past what a nationwide emergency management deployment would look like. We are living this, folks. This is what it looks like. Today, I am calling for the increased budget for emergency management across the board in every state and every jurisdiction. We need more training. We need more people. We need more qualified emergency managers, not just a collateral duty. This crisis has shown us the importance of having qualified emergency managers at the ready. Team Rubicon deserves a big bravo Zulu from everybody. The gray shirts of Team Rubicon and with the leadership of Jake Wood have stepped up in helping all kinds of roles. From working food banks to setting up cots for surge capacity, for helping administer COVID tests in certain parts of the country, the gray shirts have answered the call. And without organizations such as Team Rubicon, this response would have been much worse. Bravo Zulu, Team Rubicon. Keep up the good work. Now on to the interview. Chuck, welcome back to EM Weekly. Hey, Todd. Good to be back. So, whew, coronavirus is going crazy. Everybody seems to be working really hard. Emergency managers are at the highest demand that I've ever seen in my entire career. And uh, every state in the union is looking for more help. So that's where we're at. That's the state. That's the state of emergency right now. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, it's almost, uh, we always say state of emergency. It's kind of a world of emergency right now because there's doesn't seem to be really anybody that this isn't impacting in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Well, as of the 27th of March, where we're recording today, uh, New York State has reported that their doubling has gone down from every day to every four days is doubling now. So that looks like the looks like they're getting ahead over there in New York, which is the most impacted state in the union. 
However, I have heard that we have uh, increased or potentially increased the stay at home um, until June. I don't know if that's going to go through or not, but I keep hearing rumors on that coming from both the federal and um, for me in California, I'm at the state level, but I wonder what that will do for the economy. You know, that seems to be the, the big kind of conversation and balance about this is, you know, when do you, when do you look at what's the economic impact versus the, the life impact? Because obviously the life impact doesn't recover. The economy at some point will, um, you know, the longer this goes, I think the longer it'll take. Um, but that seems to be the, the big argument right now between, I think, a lot of the, the federal government and even local businesses. Obviously, you know, the, the federal government, the president, everything gets all the press around you know, the statements that uh, the president made the other day about wanting to be open by Easter. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of disagreement with that from public health and emergency management and others. But, um, you know, in the local news here, we've got plenty of business owners that are taking to social media and even the news and saying, you know, why don't we just open back up and let this thing uh, take its toll and see what happens. You know, there's still that camp that says, oh, we didn't do this for SARS. We didn't do this for H1N1. So why are we doing it now? Yeah, well, that's a whole different story, and that's not why we got you on the show here today, but uh, I know the conversation with, with you and I is, is always kind of fun. Um, right. But we do want to talk about how is this impacting the healthcare um, system and specifically healthcare emergency management? You know, I've had a lot of conversations with different colleagues from all across the country, some in areas that are harder hit than others, and... Um, you know, phone's been going off between texts, emails, and calls about, you know, what's your opinion on this? What do you think? What are other people doing? And, you know, it's interesting. I've been helping out um, with our local response and, and just helping out with the emergency operations center in the city here as kind of a consultant slash, you know, just helping where I can. And the interesting thing with healthcare right now is that even in areas of the country that aren't directly seeing a lot of COVID-19 patients, they're still spinning up their response. And, you know, so many people for the first time really are having to implement their incident command centers, um, getting their administrators on board with the plans, looking at surge plans. And, you know, all of a sudden this becomes very real. And the interesting thing about this response, especially in healthcare, is that this isn't, um, a no notice event uh, like an active shooter or an earthquake or a tornado where there's this surge and there's, you know, maybe a, a day or a couple days of, of really hard, difficult work to respond to it. But then it kind of slacks off. This is something that there's kind of been this slow ramp up to. And then in certain areas, it's been the quick ramp up, but then it's not really declining. It's not tapering off and it's becoming a long haul response and and it's having a lot of impacts uh some that even after all the years that i've done this that i didn't foresee um just in public perception of healthcare and how it's being handled and then um you know seeing gaps and weaknesses and plans for things that you know, i think a lot of it just uh, wasn't wasn't thought of and wasn't looked at you say thought of and not looked at. And one of the things that my contention here is that when we were doing the H1N1 response, 
we knew then, and that was one of the public health issues that we had, at least in California, right? And of course, my, my perspective is always California. We knew then that we were going to have, if H1N1 was as bad as, as this has become, we knew that we were going to have not enough beds in the ICU, not enough respirators for everybody, and we were talking about triaging and adding the expected category back into triage. And that being said, we also had an understanding that EMS was going to be taxed, that we were going to have to bring in additional emergency medical um, staff. And then, you know, this is happening right now. We were starting to see responders uh, getting uh, COVID. We, we knew that was going to occur. You know, as far as the PPE goes, I don't know. I mean, we had the strategic stockpile that had it in there, but some of that has expired because the uh, the elastic bands are breaking. So we have those issues that are done. I mean, we knew the capability or the possibility, I should say, of a pandemic, regardless of what it was, right? I mean, let's just be truthful. We weren't thinking it was going to be a novel COVID virus, which is basically a common cold. It's It was, we're looking more for the, uh, you know, influenza, right? We, we had an inkling that happened, but let me go back a second here. We also, in this time since the H1N1, we in California, and, and I know it's a nationwide issue too, uh, we've had hospitals closing. So now our capabilities and the capacity for surge has gone even down further since that this kicked off. There's a lot to, to do. And the reason, one of the reasons why in California a lot of the hospitals closed is because the infrastructure, the buildings themselves, were older and they wouldn't make earthquake, uh, they couldn't be earthquake proof. So the operators of the hospital just made it a business decision and to close it instead of rebuilding the hospital somewhere else. So there's a lot of factors into it. Now we're here with this issue. We're bringing in um, the the uh, U.S. Navy ships, um, hospital ships, uh, both Los Angeles and New York City that has about a thousand extra beds. New York City has a plan, or New York State, I should say, has a plan of taking schools, some of the colleges, um, some hotels, and and turning them into to makeshift hosp- hospitals, basically field hospitals. Uh, there's a lot of that going on for the surge capacity, but we knew this was going to happen. That's why we have the the DMATs. This is why. Well, I mean, that's the only reason why we have the DMATs. But that's why we have DMATs. That's why we have these these the ability to bring medical providers in from all over the um, the country. But here we go again. They're all busy in their own areas, so I don't even know if you could spin up a DMAT right now and, and move them from, say, I don't know, Salt Lake City to, to New York City. You know what I mean? Like, is Salt Lake not going to want to let their people go? Well, that's I think that's the big issue is, you know, most of our planning, and yes, there's been pandemic planning, but if you really think about it, from H1N1 to now, and I think we saw this, you know, after 9-11, it was terrorism, 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 bioterrorism, chemical terrorism, you know, all this. And then Katrina hit and it was all hazards, all hazards, all hazards. Then H1N1. And so it was a pandemic, pandemic. And then Ebola and it was a pandemic, Ebola, PPE, you know, there's, so there's always this, even though there's existing plans and there's infrastructure until something hits that really spins up the mind, so to speak, and spins up the response, it's hard to see where the gaps are truly, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that exercises help and, and you see them, but it doesn't really expose all the things. And what, you know, my comment earlier, we talk about things that we didn't plan for and, you know, maybe this is just me, but I've never been part of a planning team 
or during an exercise for a pandemic where anybody stood up and said, but what if the private sector, the general public buys up all the spare PPE? You know, this was something that I, I never thought about. Yeah, me either. To be honest, you know, when you talk about and not to get on, like I say, you know, not to get on the, you know, the media's responsible train, I'm not going down that road. But, you know, when this happened and people begin to get fearful, this is this is now global. So we have to look at supply chain. Where do our, you know, where do our supplies come from? A lot of them come from overseas. And so this is something that uh, I fear that we've locked into a community based thing. You know, we've got into that you know, locally executed mindset. And while correct, I, I truly believe that we have failed overall to really think about some of the larger contingencies in that, you know, PPE is, you know, now a dwindling supply. And part of that, I think, can be blamed on just-in-time inventories that, yep. that we tend to run in healthcare. Um, but you know, what do you do? And this is the questions that I don't think have necessarily been asked. If you look back to Ebola, we were so concerned with getting it right. We wanted to make sure providers were in the proper PPE. They were donning and doffing correctly, but you know, we never really had the conversation of, well, what happens if you run out? And now these conversations are starting to take the national, if not the world stage of, you know, what do you do when you run out of PPE? What do you do when you have a highly infectious disease that people are dying from and, you know, family members want to say their goodbyes? Right. That's um, a huge you know, that was a conversation that, that I had with some colleagues this morning. And, you know, one of my colleagues said, I think it's something we all think about. He goes, well, I'm going in that room. Right. And if I have to isolate for two weeks, then so be it. But I'll be there if, if my wife or kids get this. And, and that's hard to argue with. You know, I think we would all feel that way. And so there's so much of this that's just very, very unique and unfolding and seems to be having to be solved minute by minute. Yeah, I want to kind of go back on that because I was part of that conversation this morning. And I thought it was interesting that the, the two, there's two different takes on it. One was, yeah, I'm going to go into the room, you know, with my, my wife or my children if they're sick. And then I thought about it for a second, and I understand his point, and, and I'm not going to slag him for that, because it's, it's an individual choice at this point, right? Right. But then I started thinking, okay, if it's your wife and you have two daughters at home, you, you know, and you go in and you get exposed, now you're either one, you're going to be 14 days away from your kids again further, or God forbid, you know, you get sick and, and, and then uh, and then die. And then what about those two two kids that are home, you know? Right. And it's like, wow, that's a hard decision. You know, like, again, I'm not, I'm not going to say he was wrong for, for that, that opinion. I'm not at all. So, right. but the idea is, is like, that's a huge, hard choice when you're thinking about the fact that, you know, here you are, you're going to go when you want to say goodbye to your loved ones, but then the potential of you catching it and dying or, I mean, I, dying part of it's possible, but, or, or at least being away from your children for another 14 days where they can't see you. And the stress that has to be on that family, and 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 I don't, I'm thank God I'm not in that decision, in that spot to make that decision. I would never, ever, ever um, want to second guess anybody who's in that position. I just hope that they make a decision based upon what's best for their family and 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 whatnot. And that kind of goes back down to the question here because not only are we getting the residents that are sick, but we're also now getting 
uh, our our hospital staff and our EMS guys sick. And this is the crazy part about it. I just read an article where two police detectives in two different cities have gotten their homicide detectives have gotten COVID basically because they're going into a home because if somebody's dead the house they have to go and investigate it if it's under a certain age they go in and and they go into a house that the person died from COVID at their home and now they have COVID and they and they because I think as a homicide detective you're not necessarily donning PPE because there's nobody breathing on you right Right. And that's an interesting one because I've, I've heard several people ask. Um, I corrected someone the other day because, I, you know, social media is just full of misinformation right now. And one of the conversations they had was about that they were automatically cremating everyone who died of coronavirus. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's the last thing we need to be putting out on Facebook right now because, A, it's completely not true. But the uh, the same article that I read um, in researching that was saying that, you know, uh, obviously we know from like things like Ebola, the viral load is very, very high at time of death. But then what is the actual, you know, infectivity after that? And so I've heard some um, I've heard some kind of conflicting things regarding that of whether that you could catch it from a deceased person or not, because to me, and this is, again, I'm not an infectious disease expert. I know just enough to be dangerous, but you know, one of the things we've talked about so much is droplet precaution because you know, it is primarily sneezing, coughing, things like that, but we know it's highly infectious. So I don't know. I don't know at this point if we can really even 100% say that we know where, any of us have contracted it. Right. You know, it's so, it seems to be so prevalent and so many people saying things like, you know, well, I had it and I had no symptoms or I had it and I only had a fever that it seems to be so across the board as to what people's experiences are. So, you know, could, could they have gotten it that way from going to a crime scene? Possibly, you know, if they touch the body and then again, we know, just because you wear gloves, if you touch your face, if you doff your gloves right. improperly and then touch your face, touch your nose. I mean, so there's cross-contamination potential, I'm sure. But again, you know, I think there's so much right now that we don't know. And that is truly the frightening part of all this. Well, I, I think in the case with these two homicide detectives, and, and by the way, it came from a, a, a good source. It wasn't a uh, just a, a, an online article. It was... Uh, right, right. It was... I want to... I don't want to give the wrong. It was either the New York Times or the Washington Post or one of those. Forget what I've been reading, or the Wall Street Journal. I forget which one it was in. But anyway, what the point is is they go into the room. They might not even touch the body, but they've been coughing, sneezing, all the kind of stuff during their their time before they expired. And it gets on. It's you know it's alive on 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 contact. So or they're talking to the loved ones who now have it, and and they're shedding. You know, so right. Yeah, I mean, there's various different ways of contact, but the point is about it is that there are things that we do on a regular basis that we don't think about uh, having to use PPE. For instance, they were discussing the idea of it on 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 um, gas pump handles, right? When somebody right. sneezes, gas pump handles. Now, I've always cleaned my hands after a gas pump because I've just because of, I don't know. I've always done that because of the uh, my back time being in the you know in the ambulance business and. Yeah, you know, I don't know, just to what I do. Yeah, just because people are just yucky in general, <laughs> we can agree on that. <laughs> so I've never, I, it's, it's always been part of my, my 
my habit to clean my hands when I, when I'm done using the gas pump. But, um, you, you know, that makes sense. Right. And then there's the article that was in the uh, Washington post regarding the fecal matter all over the McDonald's, um, self screens. So this idea of germs spreading between people, um, hepatitis that way to things like that is not new. None of this is new, everybody. This is not new. I mean, and I know we're all preaching to the choir here, uh, but it's it's not new, everybody. And so washing our hands and having proper PPE, um, you know, doing the 20 um, second hand wash, you know, sing the alphabet or the birthday song, whatever you want to do. Make sure you're cleaning each of your fingers. This is nothing new. We teach this to our EMT students when they're like 17 years old, you know. You know, it's funny, though, because I, I think it's just, again, you know, it's what you do consistently that creates a habit that's sustainable. So, you know, if you practice things properly, you're going to build that habit. If you don't, then you're going to fall back to, to whatever you normally do. And I watched somebody the other day and I won't say where, because it was, it was an official location with a, you know, a person that should know better. And, and I watched them, you know, leave the restroom and do the old little bit of soap in the hand, turn the water on, rub the palms together, rinse the soap off, you know, hit the towel and then out the door mm. five seconds total. And, you know, this was an older gentleman and, uh, you know, it's probably the way he's been doing it for years and years. And, you know, are you going to really change that habit now? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe not. And I think that's the problem that we're seeing with sustained spread is, you know, some people just whether they can't or won't change their habits. Um, I think it's mostly won't because I don't see why anybody should have you know, the busiest people I know don't have so pressing, pressing of a schedule. They can't wash their hands for 20 seconds. Right. Um, but I, I think a lot of people are just, uh, you know, they, they don't think about this stuff, you know, as we've talked about before, they don't live in, in our world, so to speak with the, the risk management side of this. And so many of them think, you know, well, uh, this, this works and this is fine. And this is how I've always done it. So, you know, again, I think the threat level to you personally is also how you respond to it. So if you don't think that coronavirus is that serious of a thing, you're probably not going to change your behaviors. And, you know, then again, from what we've seen so far, that could either be a very serious mistake or it may be something that impacts somebody else because of you that you're never aware of. Hey, Chuck, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about surge capacity. Thank you, Todd. First of all, congratulations on being voted in the top 10 podcast for public health. That is awesome. Since this pandemic, we've been inundated with cities and businesses having difficulties with communication while their teams are working remotely. Problems with call qualities, call failing, so many issues. So with that in mind, what we wanted to do is offer EM Weekly listeners free and immediate software deployment for 30 days during the pandemic with the potential to extend it further if needed in order to help with reliable communication, coordination of operations, keeping track of people's health status, and providing direction to help keep their teams safe and healthy. We even deployed TMED, that's Titan's version of telemedicine, ahead of schedule to help with non-critical medical offices to help them stay operational, and hospitals keeping non-critical patients at home so they can save on supplies and resources. 
just go to tinyhst.com, click book a demo, and let us know that you heard about us on EM Weekly to get that free deployment. Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsor, because without them, we uh, can't bring you the quality content that we do. Now, Chuck, uh, before I jumped onto that break, and uh, I just want to talk a little bit about search capacity. So we kind of talked about it, we, we hinted around about it a little bit ago, but we didn't really talk about what the issues are, because again, we're, we don't have additional medical staff to bring in. And I read an article in the New York, or I'm sorry, in the, in MSNBC, I think it was, uh, regarding the idea of pressing into service former Navy corpsmen, which I'm one of those, and or also allowing retired doctors and nurses, which kind of weird because they're on the older scale of it, uh, to come back into service, which I guess they could take care of people that have been corona-free uh, for other things. What do you? What do we do for surge capacity when we don't have surge? You know, that's an interesting one because with the surge, you know, we always think about it and talk about it as being this this sudden onset. You know, where do you start putting people? How do you cohort patients? That again, we talk about in you know a hurricane, an earthquake, an active shooter, a tornado. You know, pandemic is a little bit different because you have to look at you know, who's affected and who's not affected. So isolation and you can't cohort um, somebody that, you know, comes in from a car wreck with a broken leg with a, a coronavirus patient. So the surge capacity piece for this has been very interesting. I've talked to a lot of people about, you know, identifying appropriate alternate care sites. And that's one of the things that I've seen a lot of people are lacking in their plans is where do hospitals expand to how do we change existing infrastructure to support this so you know one thing that um, i know my company has been helping out with a lot lately is converting different spaces into isolation wards you know converting rooms to negative pressure things of that nature now you can do that to a degree but then eventually you have to look at larger spaces and, and it was interesting you brought up earlier talking about um, changing hotels to hospitals and things like that. And the problem with that, what we've seen from some studies in the past, is that it's actually more effective uh, if you have just kind of a large area where there's multiple patients, uh, because you actually will, you'll burn your nurses and your physicians out a lot quicker by them having to go room to room, you know, within a unit, or if you think about a hotel on a hall, than you would if they just had several patients there that they could manage and kind of keep eyes on at one time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people now are kind of recommending, you know, hey, cohort these patients into larger open spaces. Um, so you like, know, almost don't like just the 1918 model, right? Uh, almost like that 1918 model? Yeah. I, I mean, essentially, and that seems weird, right, to go back to an old model of things because generally when we look back to you know, army hospitals uh, back in World War One, World War Two. when we look at the Spanish flu uh, pandemic back in 1918, do we see all these patients together? And we usually think about that now as, oh, that's horrible, that's unclean, that's, you know, but if everybody already has this in that area and they're isolated from other patients that may not have it, it really, again, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but what does it matter at that point? <laughs> if you can, if you cannot... True. burn through your staff as much by keeping, you know, four or five patients 
in a larger room so that one physician and a couple staff can attend to that group doesn't that work better so i think that's something we should be looking at with our alternate care sites and their surge capacity is you know where can we get beds where can we get larger spaces that are again appropriate for care and and i think we have a lot of those places in our community but uh again we kind of get locked into the the privacy debate i think is some of it Mm -hmm. um we think hospital rooms are private hotel rooms are private and you know this may be one of those situations where as this expands and it does grow uh and more people are requiring hospitalization then maybe going back to looking at the old ways of doing things may not be so bad that's true that is true you know it got me thinking about the the hospital wards, you know, in the military hospitals and whatnot, or the, um, you know, the, the those open bay wards like we have in emergency rooms. They seem to they seem to work well, right? And they're they're designed that way specifically so staff can go from curtain to curtain. Now, yeah, you hear things and whatnot, and and then I guess in this case we're not going to have visitors in there, right? So you know you have to worry about visitors hearing things from other people. So, I mean, you're right. I think we need to to take a look at what that would be and, and how that would work. And I think that's the model that uh, New York State was talking about in some of their gyms of having um, these stations made. So, I think we're looking at that that type of thing. Hey Chuck, we're getting close to the end here, um, and I just want to just. You kind of ended it here with what do you see? What's your prediction, your 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 crystal ball, if you will, um, about the future after this? Are we going to be seeing hospitals now taking um, the idea of pandemic planning more seriously? Or is this going to be a flash in the pan and in a year or two it's back to the same old, same old where emergency managers mm-hmm. are pulling their hair out trying to get their administration to listen to them? You know, I I think on one hand, I think this will change everything for a time. Um, You know, I think from history, we know that nothing tends to survive past a generation, so to speak. Um, You know, only the people that lived it truly take it seriously. We've seen that with 9-11. We've seen that Katrina. This will be kind of everybody that is probably teenager and up. You know, this will be something that we remember for a very long time, especially as this grows and potentially gets worse. This may be, you know, the defining event of, you know, the next several decades. Um, I certainly hope that all hospital administrators, emergency managers, politicians, city leaders, you name it, will will change their attitudes after this. Um, but I honestly, and not to sound pessimistic, but I think honestly, Todd, it will depend on the outcome overall. Um, if the feeling is that what we've done by throwing most of our plans out the window and just responding to things off the cuff works out, uh, then I think they'll go with that. And it'll be like the end of most exercises where there's a lot of patting on the back and saying, hey, good job, everyone, and we made it through. Um, But I do think there will be some people who look at this and say, we do need to add an emergency manager to our roster. Um, I think especially the hospitals that we've long talked about that just sort of add emergency management as a tack on to a position. Um, I imagine that they are probably struggling quite a bit right now with plans and procedures and 
you know, this is a, this isn't a joint commission survey. This is real world and people's lives are at stake. And so I don't know, my crystal ball says, uh, maybe it's my eight ball, you know, I'm hopeful, (laughs) I guess, for the, for the outcome to be better, uh, for this to be over soon and for people to take this seriously and, you know, understand that it is, again, all it takes is that one bad day or that one bad event to uh, really, you know, lose lives, lose staff, um, you know, and lose confidence from the community from a healthcare standpoint, you know, we're supposed to be there for our communities and take care of them. So, so I do hope they take it seriously now if they're not, and I hope that it does change uh, attitudes for the future. All right, Chuck, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, Todd. Thank you.